the job of the bourgeois historian is to scare us all away from socialism by showing that the USSR was a failed experiment because socialism is the opposite of freedom, supposedly. But I would ask, how are artists supposed to have freedom if they can't even make enough money to buy basic necessities or training and supplies or to have just free time? How could Shostakovich have composed all these amazing symphonies and operas and film scores if he had to work two day jobs and worry about getting evicted? America will never be a socialist country. 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 Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is Josh Bennett. I'm a comrade from Phoenix. Today, we'll be going over an article called Capitalism Starves Artists, Not Piracy, How Artists Can Thrive Under Socialism, which you can find online at socialistrevolution.org. That being said, this podcast version will be pretty different from the article and explore some topics on a more deep level. We'll talk about piracy, poverty, and why it's so difficult to make it as an artist, who's to blame for all of it, and how we can fix it. To do that, I'll be here in conversation with my very good friend and comrade, Erica L. How you doing, Erica? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I got to say, I'm actually really excited that you kind of called me into this, um, not just because this is a topic that uh, means a lot to me, but also that you wrote it and that this is a topic that you care about. But also we have a bit of a artist connection, don't we? We do. We went to school together in 2009 studying clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully uh, folks will understand why that's funny and why we're laughing at the idea of playing clarinet and even getting a degree in it. But <laughs> in 2009. <laughs> yeah, especially in 2009, right? <laughs> All right. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, it's my understanding that kind of the impetus for this entire article was the news on Zlib. Um, and so what is Zlib and what happened to it? So it is or it was it's kind of a liminal state, um, but it's a huge online library for pirated books and articles, basically text information in any form. So last year, the domain was taken down by the FBI so you can't get to it with a normal browser. Um, but at that time, and as far as I know, the servers are still up. Um, so there's, you know, 11 million books, 84 million articles, and they're still somewhere. But you have to jump through all these hoops to get to them through the Tor browser, um, which isn't always reliable because the links change. And I personally haven't been able to get it to work for months. Um, so what's interesting about Zlib and what made you want to write about uh, about Zlib and the fact that it was being taken down by uh, the FBI? So what's really interesting to me is about the reaction of people. There's this like false dichotomy that's being set up of artists versus pirates or authors versus readers. So for instance, a lot of readers like me, I mean, I think everybody reads, but anyway, <laughs> I'm pretty bummed about it because it was how I reliably found books that I couldn't find in a bookstore. Um, it's how I got my textbooks for free for college, which saved me thousands of dollars. And of course, it saved me a lot of money on books I was just interested in. Um, like I could read a little bit of it really quick to see if it was worth spending money on since I do prefer 
a physical copy. And it's how lots of people around the world access books that are banned or unaffordable to them, too. So it was this worldwide library. And I saw somebody say it felt like burning the Library of Alexandria, which is a little dramatic, but I get it. It's definitely a little dramatic. But yeah, like, you know, there's a certain truth to that. And, you know, I will say personally, I, I teach at a community college. So a lot of my students, this was effectively the only way they could actually get their textbooks, um, you know, because, you know, the community college obviously serves a very diverse and economically diverse population. Yeah, I, you know, so e even for those of us in the world of education, this was quite a loss. Um, that being said, you know, obviously with being pirated books and pirated textbooks and, you know, all, all these sort of, uh, you know, people having free access to all this different kind of media, the question is, is kind of important to ask, which is how did authors feel about it? So a lot of them think it's a good thing um, because they're saying like, now people have to buy my books instead of pirating them for free. So that means I'll be able to make more money. Um, so they say stuff like piracy hurts my ability to get book deals and it reduces my income. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that is the most common argument, right? That if people have access to this, then how are authors supposed to make, you know, money? Because after all, they need to sell their wares. They need to sell this sort of product, right? But in the end, it's a bit of a double bind because if people can't afford art or to buy books, uh, then how do people who make art, you know, how do they have an income problem? Uh, and, you know, what's, what's the kind of reciprocal nature between these things? Yeah, I find both sides of this really compelling if you can't afford art and information and creative products, you know, the things that make us human, the things that make life worth living, um, but it's also so difficult to be a person that makes those things and be afforded to stay alive and eat and all that. And I have experience with that myself. Yeah. So what is it like trying to live and work as an artist? So um, finding statistics on exactly how much money artists make is really difficult because full-time salaried positions are not the norm for artists. Most of them have to make this patchwork income where they do a gig here, they teach a lesson there, they sell some stuff, and to get a consistent income, most artists have a day job that's completely not art-related. So if you Google salaries of artists, you're not going to find useful information. Yeah. And, you know, speaking from personal experience, that has been my life. Um, you know, as I, I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking, uh, you know, since then and between now, I've, I've lived and worked as a freelance musician, but also as a freelance educator, but also I had to have like, you know, uh, an office job or this, that, and the other. And even now I find myself, you know, having this full-time position at a community college, though it should be noted, it's a, it's still a contract position. So I may not have it for long. Um, you know, in the end, I'm still having to do this other thing to supplement my art making. Um, as uh, another acquaintance of ours likes to say, uh, really what I am is a subsidized musician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, when I was um, in grad school, I was a teaching assistant in music theory, and then I was also working as a stage hand, stage manager, and then also teaching music theory lessons on the side and going to school full time. It was crazy. Yeah, and you know... And, you know, when we take all that combined together with both of our experiences, the real, 
again, the question becomes, well, then how do we know what artists are making, right? And, you know, am I making money as an educator, but then also as an artist or as an artist or as an, it's just really confusing. So is there any research or any kind of information out there that we can pull some insight on as far as like how artists make their money and what they're making? Yes, there has been research done in the form of surveys. And that's really the most useful way to get all this. Um, so I'm just going to go over some highlights. Um, so I'm not reading a bunch of numbers out loud, but if you want to see the actual surveys, you can look at the article online. So Capitalism Starves Artists, Not Piracy. Um, and that links to all of the surveys. Um, so in one of them, where they surveyed 1,000 visual artists, the median income was only between 20000 to 30000 per year. And most of that income was from day jobs, not art. Um, so to put that into perspective, if you're making like 30000 per year, that's a little more than 2000 per month before taxes. Um, but that survey was from 2018, where the median rent was $1,400. And now it's $2,000. Um, there's no 2023 data for artists' income that I can find, but I can guarantee it has not increased by over a third as rent has. Those some shocking data. Um, and it's interesting because, again, I think it kind of highlights how little folks are making right now. And that, in fact, that most of it's not even coming from their art. But really, at the end of the day, if all of your money is going to rent, where's the money for electricity, water, food, gas, childcare, healthcare? It's a great question. You know, with the Affordable Care Act, you know, affordable in many scare quotes, um, insurance premiums can be over $900 per month for their bronze plan. You know, that's not affordable. And to add to that, artists also need education, and that costs a lot of money too. And if you look at the average debt from getting art degrees, you'll see numbers like $25,000 for bachelor's degrees, and for master's degrees, it's over $60,000. So add another monthly expense to that, the student debt payments, which they'll be paying for a lifetime. Wow. And of course, this is just visual artists that we're talking about at this point. Um, obviously, there's many, many other kind of, of artists. And, you know, you and I happen to have a music background. So, I mean, the question is, well, what about musicians? Um, it's not any better. It's even worse. Um, average income was 21000 But that was, again, 2018, before the pandemic, which totally killed live performances for a few years. And there's a survey in the UK by a charity called Help Musicians, that found that 98% of the 500 musicians they surveyed were worried about money, which is not surprising, and similarly high percentages when asked about pretty much everything else like housing and food worries. And the American charity Sweet Relief Fund found that 65% of all American musicians don't have health insurance. So there are charities for artists and musicians? Yes. Capitalism is so bad at keeping artists alive that there need to be fucking charities. But of course, this is all just for living expenses. You know, uh, I'm a musician and I have to buy tons of equipment. Um, you know, for instance, you know, we're sitting here, uh, you know, using some of the equipment that I actually use. And by the way, this isn't just for fun. I don't just have these microphones. I actually have done recording work. It's one of the main reasons I started buying this equipment in the first place. But even just as a clarinet player, there are reeds, there's yearly maintenance. If the instrument cracks or breaks down, I mean, it's like a, a, a car expense, right? Um, and, and just like a car, I need this thing in order to make money. Yeah, I dropped mine, like, clearing out about six inches onto a carpeted floor once. I broke off a tendon. I had to buy a whole new 
clarinet? Uh, yeah. Um, so when you get hired for a gig, do they provide all those things you need? <laughs> not at all. Not one little bit. As far as I'm aware, the only kind of professional group or uh, ensemble that you can be a part of that does provide equipment for your gig are in military bands. Uh, otherwise, yeah, like professional symphony orchestra, no, you're buying your own equipment. Uh, you know, playing in a band on a regular basis or being like a, a working cover band or anything like that, no, you're buying all of your own equipment. Um, some people are sponsored artists, but even then, they're still paying mostly for their own equipment. Um, indeed, in, in many sponsorship contracts, you have the privilege to buy the equipment at a slightly reduced rate, and that's about it. Which again brings us back to this double bind of how do you afford art if even just you know paying to be an artist, you have to effectively pay for the privilege. Yeah, so workers are less and less able to afford things like going to the movies and buying books and records. Inflation is the worst that it's been in 40 years. Eating up wages and people's emergency savings. Um, more detailed statistics on this are in the article. But basically, rent is rising way faster than wages for everybody. And if you want to escape having to pay rent and own your own house, you're looking at super high interest rates and prices for homes. And this is at a time when workers are getting laid off by the thousands, especially in the tech sector, which is supposed to be a haven of secure, cushy jobs. So life is just becoming work, sleep, die. Yeah. So how's the average worker supposed to afford art as our wages are being eaten up when we can barely afford our living expenses? Yeah. And you said that you had experience with this. What was your experience trying to make it uh, make it work as an artist? So like we were talking about, I went to music school and I really wanted to be a performer. But the harsh reality of getting a symphony job set in because like one second clarinet spot in some orchestra in Nebraska will get over 200 people auditioning for it. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, and you have to pay for your own plane ticket and hotel and all that. And I wanted to do it. So I practiced my ass off. And what happened is all the pressure and stress built up and I got injured over and over again. Playing clarinet which sounds ridiculous. But seriously, I was in so much pain from practicing so much. I gave up on the performing aspect. And I found that other music jobs that were really available to me were teaching jobs, which famously do not pay well. They're extremely stressful with poor conditions. And the other option was to try to do that patchwork living, taking little gigs here and there. And the problem with that is financial insecurity and lack of health care. And I just have too many health problems. So that's not an option for me. It's basically choosing death. So the fact that I couldn't find something that worked for me totally killed all the passion I had for playing music. It turned it into this totally joyless and emotionally and physically painful experience. And who did I blame for it all? I blamed myself because <laughs> I kept hearing this famous Steve Martin quote in my head. And here it is. It's be so good. They can't ignore you. <laughs> and then I'd hear about like Taylor Swift getting signed to a record label at 14 and releasing her first album in high school and I would be like 19 and thinking, damn, I am so behind and untalented and lazy. I've only written like two songs and here she has a whole famous album. Like I might as well just give up. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think all of us kind of hear that. We hear all these like, and they're supposed to be these inspirational stories of young musicians. Like, you know, you mentioned Taylor Swift, like making it like you can do it too. But Taylor Swift has resources that most people don't have, right? Yeah. If you just look at her Wikipedia, it says her dad was a stockbroker and her mom was a mutual fund marketing executive. And she went to these fancy private schools. She traveled to New York City to take singing and acting lessons. Her mom would take her to Nashville to audition at record labels. She was a model at Abercrombie & Fitch, and her parents would get her all these contacts with people already in the industry. Yeah, plus, it's not like she wrote all that music by herself. Yeah, she did write like a lot of it by herself, but I want to emphasize that this is with the help and guidance of other people who are professionally trained already. So my vision of her sitting in the woodshed all alone as a teenager churning out this album was like totally false. And like that record company that she got signed to at 14, coincidentally, her father bought a $120,000 stake in it. So I'm sure that had something to do with it. By the way, I'm not really a Taylor Swift fan, but I'm also not trying to say that she's not talented or a hack. I actually think it's irrelevant. Um, the point is that she had access to social and financial supports that the vast majority of artists don't have. So it was ridiculous to expect myself or anyone really to hold a candle to that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this. This is something that I, you know, I like to think about a lot. You know, we we have this sort of idea in our head that the Taylor Swifts and the Michael Jacksons of the world, they're these self-made people. But the truth is, just as you were mentioning, it takes a small army of people to create just one record, actually not even a record, just a single track. In other words, it is a socialized form of production. And to that end, though, at this moment, that socialized form of production is basically only available for the already wealthy. And, you know, does it have to be this way? No, I think there's enough wealth in society to give more people those social and financial supports so that they don't have to rely on being born into a wealthy family to have artistic opportunities. Hey, everybody, this is Editor Josh interrupting real quick. Just want to let you all know that we recently released a video on our YouTube channel called IMT Marxist School Infiltrated by Billionaire-Backed TPUSA, where Comrade Gage hilariously responds to TPUSA's pathetic attempt to infiltrate one of our public events. We did edit together the best parts in a manner suitable for the content. They got their doctrines of demons. For these people, which are classical Marxists, they see capitalism as the greatest evil. All the other commies, the Cubans, they did it wrong. Oh, Stalin, the Stalinists, they did it wrong. But we're going to get it right. Talk about being if you get a chance, watch the video, like, subscribe, yada, yada, yada. But more importantly, unlike TPUSA, we are not funded by billionaire capitalists. So watch the video to learn how you can fight against reactionary groups and help grow socialism right here in the belly of the beast. After all, the commies are coming. Learn how you can be one of them. All right, that's all for now. Let's get back to the podcast. All right, so just to recap a little bit. First, we're on a double bind of the consumer side, where people want to buy art, but they can't afford to buy it. And the only few like options that they have to like pirate art or have access to art are taken away from them. Meanwhile, artists are also in a double bind in which it is very expensive to make art, but even if they do make it, uh, unless you're part of this like wealthy 1%, you yourself can't afford to make art. Uh, so we're in like a double, double, double bind where both artists and consumers can't make enough money to either purchase art or even make it, right? So the big question here is, 
Who is to blame for all of this, right? Is it the people who are pirating books, movies, and art, or is somebody else to blame? So it is not the pirates, um, and for a lot of reasons. So let's take like a big movie studio. So all the artists are earning a wage paid by a big fat cat capitalist. So if we pirate movies from that studio, a lot of people think you're stealing wages from the artists that worked on it because they get the money from the movie sales, um, and then the capitalist has less money to pay them. Well, that's a misunderstanding of how capitalist businesses operate. Yeah, uh, it seems that I've noticed that, strangely, higher profits do not seem to translate into higher wages. Yes, and it's because wages are really a negotiation, or a fight, really, between the workers and the capitalist over those surplus profits. And the capitalist always wants wages to be as low as possible, because that means a bigger slice of the pie for them. And they're the ones who have control over the wages, ultimately, so they don't have to decide to pay the workers more at all. Which, by the way, all of the profits come from the unpaid labor of the workers in the first place. If you really want a thorough explanation of that, check out Value, Price, and Profit, the Marx classic. But anyway, so that it explains how the workers are getting screwed no matter how big that profit pile is. And if it gets bigger, it does not translate into getting paid more. Right. So what about, though, like small independent like uh, movie studios or record companies, right? Like, um, you know, places that are doing more adventurous films, you know, um, are they going out of business because of piracy? And if they go under, I mean, those workers will lose all their jobs. So I know it can look like that, but it's not really true that it's piracy putting these smaller studios out of business. What is, is the competition with the bigger companies, the monopolies. These companies have more resources, so they can pay more workers higher wages. They can afford better technology. They can hire lawyers to do things like duck tax laws and protect their intellectual property or get away with stealing that intellectual property from others. Um, they can get bigger and cheaper loans from banks. They can beat out the competition, and they'll buy out these smaller studios if they want. So would it at least help if people quit pirating films? Well, I think it's really a pipe dream to ask people who can barely afford rent and emergency savings um, to stop pirating films and start going to the movie theater for $15 a person. But even if we could, you know, maybe these studios will last a little bit longer, but the monopolies are still there to beat them out in the end. And people pirate big-budget films all the time, like Marvel or whatever, Arguably way more than the art films, but those studios can handle it. So then what is the solution? Is it like antitrust legislation to get rid of the monopolies, to stop big businesses beating out smaller ones? Well, the process of monopolization is inevitable under capitalism, which means small businesses die out more and more, and no amount of antitrust legislation can stop it. If you break up a big company, they're just going to start combining again over and over again. There is no mom-and-pop small business artist utopia. And personally, I find the argument that we shouldn't pirate things because we need to support small businesses um, really insulting. It's telling me as a worker that I need to give up part of my wages, which I earn by being exploited, in order to save some small business owner so that they can keep doing what they're doing. But that wouldn't even work because some lost sales here and there are not really to blame. It's the capitalists. They're the real pirates. They're the ones hoarding all the money from art and media and all that. So at last year, in 2022, Warner Music made almost $3 billion in profits. 
Spotify made over $3 billion, and Disney made over $22 billion. Yet, artists get poorer and poorer. So how can you blame a worker for not wanting to shell out $20 to go to a movie when these people are getting away with billions? Yeah, and you know, just to kind of add on to that a little bit, you know, the suggestion is that the problem isn't that there's this larger problem, but it's that individuals are making the the wrong kind of small choices. And it puts all of that, you know, on the worker themselves rather than looking at society and the way society is is um, organized. But just real quick to kind of get back to the idea of monopolies, because you, you're making kind of an interesting point here. Um, it seems like what you're suggesting is that the problem with monopolies is not that they're big, but it's that they're privately owned. From the standpoint of production, monopolies are actually progressive. They are the embryo of a planned economy because they're so big and complicated that they require massive planning inside of them. It means more efficiency, more abundance, and more technological advances on a scale that's really impossible in any other form of production. Um, This is the basis of the incredible wealth that we have in America and the rest of the world. And we should not go backwards to this romantic economy of small producer artisans. That would mean to give up on all the advancements we've made and prevent more from being made. So it's private property that is killing art and artists. Yes, it's not monopolies themselves. It's the privately owned nature of them, which means that they're being controlled by individuals who act on the profit motive instead of organizing production for the good of all. Which means, you know, in plain English, workers and artists get squashed, art becomes a source of profit, and nothing else. Um, It's why there are so many remakes being made and less adventurous art. Yeah, as a quick aside before we we move on to some of my other questions, um, there's a really interesting interview with George Lucas from a few years ago where he actually talks about the fact that, you know, being a private filmmaker actually puts you in an incredibly narrow uh, window of creation. And he actually says, suggests that Soviet filmmakers had more freedom than he ever did. So with all that in mind, what is the solution then? Well, the short answer is to get rid of capitalism and private property and replace it with a democratically planned economy run by the working class itself. And the short word for that is socialism. So to save art and artists, we have to combine the big production and planning with the creativity and freedom that is only possible when the people doing the work own all these companies. And how exactly would that save art? Well, it means that we could use the massive profits from any industry, say from like a tech company, and we could use it to fund anything we want, like universal healthcare, subsidized housing, and art. So we could pay artists to make things. What would that actually look like? So the USSR was a planned economy that operated for almost a century. And despite being bureaucratically degenerated and deformed, they took funding of art really seriously. And there's an article you can find on this only through JSTOR called The Organization of Artists' Work in the USSR by a Soviet art professor named Lazarev. Uh, JSTOR, is that free? No, it costs $19.50 per month, and you can only download 10 PDFs per month. (laughs) But luckily, you can get the highlights here for free. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so he describes exactly how visual artists in particular made money, 
And we should take all of this with a pretty heavy few grains of salt, because, of course, there was heavy censorship under Stalinist rule, and disobeying could easily mean death. So, first-hand accounts like Lazarev's are questionable, but we can still learn from the economic structures that he describes and think about how we might organize our economy in the future, and also to be inspired, you know, thinking about how a different life is possible. All right. Well, yeah, that's really interesting. So how was art in particular organized and how were artists paid in the Soviet Union? So there were a few ways that artists can make money. And one way was to sell their art to state organizations and museums. And another way was to be commissioned by the Union of Artists or other parts of the state. So for example, to make a mosaic or illustrate a book. Or if artists didn't like relying on projects like inconsistent pay like this, they could choose to be paid a consistent wage through the art fund. But the art fund was about way more than just wages. It provided things artists needed to live, like special housing, medical services, and childcare, and also supplies like paint, workshops, services like printing, and sculpture casting. And they even hired workers to do all these things. And it wasn't even just basic facts of life that they provided for. They paid for artists to go on retreats to totally focus on their art. And if they had kids, the kids could just come or go to summer camps. There would be these special wandering groups for young artists that would travel around the country. And this kind of experience is really great for inspiration and learning. But in the capitalist world, this is only accessible to young people with wealthy families. So that is pretty dramatically different from the situation here in, uh, in America. Yeah, these things would change so many lives, especially for women and other disadvantaged groups. Even if it was just free childcare, that would enable so many more women to do creative work. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, really, like, what do you need more than anything else to create? You need time, right? You need time and space. And so, yeah, like just opening up childcare would, would provide that. Uh, and, and yeah, as you say, especially for women. So in the end, who decides which artists would get the funding? You know, can I just show the government a blank canvas and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm an artist. This is art. Give me money. So according to Lazarev, these decisions were made democratically. So the artist union was supposed to be a democratic body, but of course it really wasn't, just like the whole Soviet bureaucracy after the Stalinist degeneration. But the structures it set up were really interesting. Um, and how did that work? So each artistic discipline had its own department, and each city or group of small towns had a branch, which would elect local leadership. And to be a member of a branch, you had to complete some level of education, which was free, and publicly show your art in a union exhibition, which were open to all artists, very low barrier for entry. And then after that, the artist could apply to join, and then the branch would vote on their membership by secret ballot. So if you just threw a bunch of pasta sauce at a canvas, you probably wouldn't get voted in. Um, so these bodies would decide which art had merit or not. Um, and then they would elect delegates to send to higher congresses and such, which would direct which art would get funded on a bigger scale according to the values in their constitution. So I can already see how some people might react to this about this, you know, uh, you know, the merit of art being decided democratically. Like, you know, wouldn't this water down art? You know, so for instance, if I made some art that was really challenging or shocking and no one liked it, then they wouldn't vote in favor of it and only boring, simple art would get voted for. So no, when I say democratically, I mean democratically by other artists. 
So only people who are also trained to see what you see and who really care about making unique art since that's what they do all day too. And part of democracy really means getting the chance to explain and defend your art to try to convince other people of its merit. And even then, it's true that some art with real merit would still slip through the cracks. But compare that to capitalism. Yeah, and you know, if I may, we hear this all the time that like, you know, you know, let's say an orchestra was to democratically decide the program for the year. Like, oh, well, then we wouldn't hear so much Beethoven because we'd hear other things. Like, well, that kind of assumes that we don't have any, like, you know, as musicians, that we don't have any taste, right? You no, know, and indeed, we'd love to play Beethoven, but we'd rather play it on our terms and then maybe, just maybe, play something else every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, to your point on, like, you know, Comparing that to capitalism now, like, you know, pretty much all great art seems to be slipping through the cracks right now. Yeah, because the vast majority of art being made is not funded. And you don't get any meaningful opportunity to defend it or convince people of it. All you can do is put it on the internet. So I would prefer an artist union by far to just putting my stuff on Instagram and hoping people see it and decide to give me money. And by the way, who sees what on Instagram is decided by, you know, big tech companies privately owned with a profit motive. They're just looking for, you know, what will keep people's eyeballs on the screen the longest so they can see more advertisements. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So once again, in sort of like, we seem to be having this like a imaginative person kind of shooting back with questions, right? Okay. So life was perfect for artists in the USSR, but what about Stalin? Well, no, it wasn't perfect. Um, under Stalin and later Brezhnev, all art had to conform to this ideal called socialist realism, which is a little hard to define on purpose because it was advantageous to keep it wishy-washy because then they could say anybody was breaking the rules if that was useful to, for them. But we can say in general that it meant that art needed to be, you know, quote-unquote, accessible enough for the average worker, who was apparently dumb, and show that Soviet life and leadership were awesome and perfect and nothing ever went wrong. But it wasn't just peer pressure. Like, it was serious. So if the state decided that an artist broke this, they could be arrested, exiled, or even killed. And the murkiness of socialist realism was especially fraught and complex when applied to music, because even if it has lyrics, it's still mostly abstract, which makes it both difficult for the censors to control, which meant that composers could sometimes get away with things that maybe other artists couldn't, but also more risky for these composers because the state could come up with almost anything to come after them. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Soviet audiences loved symphonies because those don't even have lyrics. Uh, and it was there that they could catch a glimpse of real life uncensored. Yeah, the poster child of all this and one of the most famous Russian artists of all time was Dmitry Shostakovich. He's a really good case study for these questions. How can we fund artists and what was life like for Soviet artists who were funded in a planned economy? Yeah, and you know, to that end, uh, you know, it's not for nothing that his Ninth Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony, was actually premiered on loudspeakers in Leningrad during the Siege of Leningrad during the Great Patriotic War, otherwise known as World War II. And stories from both Russians 
and Germans say that there was like a 10 to 15 minute uh, ovation in the entire city. Uh, and one German soldier was even quoted as saying, how are you supposed to beat these people if they do this in the middle of war? <laughs> um, so yeah, it really, it really does speak to the, the fact, and you know, you kind of alluded to this just moments ago, that the Soviet audience, workers, they loved this music and they loved this kind of art. Yeah, and Shostakovich was a genuine socialist. Um, during World War II, he was a fireman. There's a picture of him wearing a helmet on a Time magazine mm -hmm, cover, mm -hmm. you know, fighting this war against the Nazis. Um, but bourgeois historians like to deny this and twist his words around. Um, but he wrote an opera in 1934 called Lady Macbeth of the Mitzenks District. Don't know if I pronounced that right. But this was about the liberation of women through elevating their material conditions, which is a totally socialist idea. And at that time, the bureaucracy applauded it. But then two years later, Stalin attended a performance and walked out before it ended. And then shortly after that, there was an article in Pravda called Muddle Instead of Music, which smeared the opera and Shostakovich as a formalist and other insults. But it also threatened his life by saying he was playing a game of clever ingenuity that may end very badly. And that scared him so badly that he started taking a packed suitcase with him everywhere because he was certain he'd be arrested at any time. Which was a very logical conclusion to make, because this was 1936, the height of the Moscow trials, when all kinds of people, including the Bolshevik leaders of the October Revolution, are getting publicly tried and executed, and artists, too. Um, there's a lot more to say about the censorship and threats on his life that Shostakovich went through, and there's plenty of material out there, you know, especially by historians like Richard Tereskin who pretty much every music student has to read and buy his five-volume textbook. A very, very expensive five-volume textbook. Yes. Um, so what's funny about Tereskin, uh, he'll call the October Revolution a totalitarian coup d'etat. <laughs> but then in the same book, he'll admit that Soviet composers were, quote, extremely well-trained. So let me translate that for you. You could get quality advanced instruction in art and music for free. He'll also admit that artists were financially supported by the state. But of course, he'll blow that off by saying, well, that money was only used to control them. Um, and there's a kernel of truth there for sure. But of course, he's not going to describe how it all worked, lest he inspire artists of today to believe that an alternative to starvation is possible. But that's because the job of the bourgeois historian is to scare us all away from socialism by showing that the USSR was a failed experiment and everything they ever did was bad because socialism is the opposite of freedom, supposedly. But I would ask, how are artists supposed to have freedom if they can't even make enough money to buy basic necessities or training and supplies or to have just free time? You know, how could Shostakovich have composed all these amazing symphonies and operas and film scores if he had to work two day jobs and worry about getting evicted? Yeah, and, you know, if I may interject real quick, I, you know, I actually had recent experience with this. Um, around the time that you were first starting to write this article, I had just done a gig for Memorial Day, and I hadn't been paid for it for several weeks. But yes, no, the scary thing is that, you know, somebody might be well-trained by the state only to be used by that state for propaganda purposes. 
Well, guess what? It happens <laughs> that, here too. It happens here too. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and they didn't even pay you on time. So what's the point? <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of the uh, incredible amount of student debt that I have, you know, I, I tell you what, I'll play for the state all day long if they just go ahead and pay my student loans. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, um, with all that in mind, would a socialist revolution in America be a repeat of what happened with the USSR? So in one sense, for the revolution itself, the answer is kind of a yes. So the October Revolution itself was a truly democratic mass uprising where workers took control over their own lives for the first time in history. And writing it off as a coup or a failed experiment is a crime. A successful American socialist revolution would also accomplish this. It would just be really different in the details, so not really a repeat. So then maybe what I'm really asking and what a lot of people are also asking is, would it be a repeat of the degeneration of the USSR in an American revolution? Well, I think the answer is a very strong no, and I think for two main reasons. For one thing, America in the 21st century has more wealth than any other country in the world. Um, compare that to early 20th century Russia. They had the complete opposite situation. They had to start their industrial development practically from scratch, and the problem was that you can't have a totally socialist economy based on this massive scarcity and poverty. You know, you have to have enough to share. Um, so they had to battle that from the start. And the second reason has to do with isolation. So the leaders of the October Revolution, Lenin and Trotsky, always knew that without the support of the European workers overthrowing their own bourgeoisie, the Russian workers would never be able to fight international capitalism there on their own forever. Um, they did for a surprisingly long time, but the isolation of Russia is the core reason for that bureaucratic degeneration and ultimately led to the restoration of capitalism. All right. So, yeah, so compare that to America, right? America has its revolution. What would happen? Well, there's no chance that we will be the only socialist country. For one thing, our government actively plots against and crushes socialist movements in other countries, especially in Latin America. So if we got rid of the forces crushing those places, um, that would unleash the movements once more. And it would be a very short time before both North and South America are socialist. And if we look back at the events of Black Lives Matter 2020, think about all the protests in other countries, on the other side of the planet even, that were held in solidarity with us. So if American workers went all the way to taking power, that would inspire movements everywhere. Which I think ultimately brings us all the way back to kind of the core question of this discussion. What would happen to art under socialism? Well, in general, I think that art and artists will thrive in a way that they've never been able to thrive before. Um, I also think that two really interesting things will happen. One, the line between workers and artists will dissolve, and then the line between work and art themselves will dissolve. Mm -hmm. So with all the wealth that's currently being held captive by capitalists and all the future wealth that can be created by unleashing production from the profit motive— um, we can generously fund all the art, film, music, books, architecture, brand new forms of art we've never even heard of um, that we want to. 
And the working week would dramatically shorten without loss in pay, since a planned economy would mean that we'd be able to choose which work needs to be done, and we'd be able to use automation to do work for us. And instead of, you know, getting rid of jobs, that would just free up so many people to pursue whatever creative work that they want to do. So we'd not just have the money to do it, but also the time. And I think that would mean that all workers would have the ability to express themselves artistically. So that's what I mean by the line between workers and artists dissolving. Yeah. And, you know, just to interject here real quick, uh, th- this is so inspiring. This is These are such great points. Um, and, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, he, he very famously once said that, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but, you know, famously that, you know, I'm less concerned with the weight of Einstein's brains as, you know, the number of Einsteins that we we haven't had a chance because they toiled away in labor rather than having the chance to be, you know, a great thinker. I think that's also true for artists, right? Like how many Yo-Yo Ma's have we missed because, you know, a great cello player never had the chance to express themselves? How many Bob Dylans have just been, have come and gone and we never had the chance to know the things that they had to say? You know, how many great voices like Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, have toiled away working in a restaurant rather than singing on stages? And really, that is the promise of socialism is that it would, just as you said, it would erase that line and it would give everyday people, all kinds of people, the true opportunity to be able to express themselves in an artistic and fulfilling way. Yeah. So about work versus art, like I was saying earlier, in my job as an engineer, there are times when I get to do really creative things. And there are also times I have to do really soul-sucking things. And the latter is really just because of capitalism, which requires that everything be as profitable as possible. For example, I had to go to a different state twice and spend tons of hours moving stuff from one factory to another just because the second factory offered a contract to my company that was $8 million cheaper. There was no other reason to do it. It was so much wasted life and effort. Um, So if we remove the profit motive from work, what's left is all the creativity and joy of making something. So the line between that and art gets really fuzzy. And I think that over time, once we no longer have to work for money, work and art just become the same thing. So it'll work will go from something you're forced to do to something that you're inspired to do. Maybe because you want to help someone or make something really cool or there's a really interesting problem that you want to solve. Wow, that's, that is so inspiring. Um, yeah, and I totally agree. And, you know, intriguingly, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening to this, if you're interested in more of our ideas on where we're coming from as far as art and its relationship to work, I'd highly recommend that you check out our pamphlet, Art and the Class Struggle by Alan Woods, uh, where he actually makes the really great point that art emerged because of our labor. So really, the socialist revolution would finally and completely uh, finish that circle from the start of art to like art at really its highest phase, which would really only come under socialism and communism. Um, Erica, before we sign off here, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, there, there are a lot of jobs that artists take that are you know supposed to be their dream jobs, like graphic design, or composing music. But really, what they end up doing is just making advertisements or jingles so some company can sell more of some product to increase profits. You know, where's the artistic fulfillment in that? It's it's also totally soul-sucking, even though it's considered creative work. 
Um, all of that would totally disappear with a planned economy because there would be no more need for so many industries, like complete industries, like the insurance industry, the advertising industry, um, and probably others, since the whole point of those is just to increase profits for some capitalist. But under socialism, their disappearance would not mean poverty for artists as it would under capitalism. It would just mean time and resources freed up to be used for other things like public art. So I think that American socialist revolution would set off an explosion of human creativity. And I'm really excited to see what happens. Well, folks, that was my conversation with my good friend, musical colleague and comrade, Erica L. As a reminder, you can read her article, Capitalism Starves Artists, Not Piracy, online at socialistrevolution.org or in issue 37 of Socialist Revolution magazine. If you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating, which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, why not join the IMT and bring these ideas to your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers? You can learn more about the IMT and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Meanwhile, stay healthy and safe and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. <laughs>